If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. Thank you for tuning in. It is uh, the third day of summer as I record this. Beautiful outside today, finally. it's uh, We've had a bit of a rainy stretch, but I think we needed it. So nice to get the summery feel back. Everybody seems to be in good spirits everywhere I walk around this morning. I'd like to give a shout out to uh, to start here to my family and friends and clients who have been so supportive of this project and who continue to send me positive feedback and encouragement. I've gotten so many nice messages and emails over the past couple of weeks, and I just want you to know I'm very grateful to have you in my life and for all of your support. Today on the show, I've got Grant Earnhardt, and I'll tell you more about him in a second. But before that, I have to let you know that uh, Highway to Health podcast is now on Spotify. So if you're at work or in your car and you get tired of listening to music and want something more engaging uh, to get you through your workday for your commute, you can switch over and listen to us there. Uh, you can type in Highway to Health and add podcast uh, in, your, in the search bar on, on Spotify. There is a song called titled uh, Highway to Health, so uh, make sure that you're, you're in the right place. Uh, maybe I should see if they'll let me include the song in the show at some point. If you are uh, interested in, in helping support the podcast financially, you can go to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash highway to health. My guest for today's show is Grant Earnhardt. He's a, a former colleague, uh, still a colleague, I guess. <laughs> he's a, he's a, a friend and colleague. We used to work in the same place together. Uh, his, his office happens to be next door to my new office, so it's great that he's, he's so close by. And uh, we've had lots of great conversations over the years. And uh, he's uh, recently, I guess he's been here maybe two or three years at this point, uh, recently transplanted back to Min- Minneapolis uh, since uh, his spending time in Boulder and San Francisco. He's, uh, he's a former world-class athlete and uh, got into rolfing as a, as a means of uh, kind of studying self-care, I think, to some extent, and really, really got into the model and we we talk about it on the on in this podcast, and we don't really talk so much about what rolfing is. So, uh, just quickly, it's it's a form of manual therapy that tends to work on uh, sort of deeper patterns of fascia, and they're sort of known for their their ten series. But you know, th- there's th- these are these are models that that we use t- to some extent because we try to get as close to what we think is happening and. Grant has some some differing uh, opinions about what might actually be happen- happening in this, and uh, he still uses the rolfing model, so he considers himself a, a rolfer. But he also thinks there might be something a little bit uh, a, a little bit more curious and, and and deep going on with with people uh, in this therapeutic relationship. And I think it's it's worth uh, worth the listen. We really kind of riff for a little while here on the, in this podcast because we both worked in the world of, of chronic pain and, and working in, and around orthopedic challenges. And uh, I think there's a lot here to, to discover. If you don't have any experience 
in having body work done, I think there's, it could be a, a real informative thing for you. And even if you do, and you're, and you're kind of trying to figure out what to do for some challenge you're having, whether it's from an injury or just simply aging, I think there's some good stuff in here. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Grant Earnhardt. For me lately, the idea of manual therapy, it's all about the nervous system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as you probably know, being a rolfer. You're in, you're in my camp now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I still still touch people like a rolfer, yeah. which would be uh, the classic rolfing idea is that we're changing, at least as it was told to me. And I went to school back starting in 1998, then 2000, yeah. and finished 2002. And as it was sort of given to me, it was the idea that I'm going to work on this person to think about their postural imbalance and knowing anatomy. I'm going to take that knowledge and I'm going to use my hands to affect their fascia right. to, yeah. to alleviate and change these patterns so that they can stand differently, have less pain, have more comfort, have more personal awareness. And really like the holy grail for us was like understanding fascia learning fascia it's all about the fascia and i was sort of like um even in school i just was like a hard pill for me to swallow i had a lot of questions about it yeah i've always been kind of questioning person had a lot of questions about really how is that possible how can this work but i i tried it for a long time and um got sort of disillusioned actually went to art school in san francisco instead what do you, what, what were you trying that that you were disillusioned by well i just didn't believe the theory okay in with within the the sort of structural integration rolfing yeah i think at paradigm? the time at the time it was about rolfing because that's really what my experience was my yeah, training yeah. was it wasn't about manual therapy in general but now i i would extend that to all sort of I don't want to sound so sacrilegious, but I just, I will extend that to pretty much the majority of manual therapy. Yeah. I don't think it works in the way that we have been told yeah, it does. Yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're onto something. Yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. Yeah. And that's where people get really angry when you have these conversations with them, especially when you try to talk to people who've been doing this for their livelihood for a long time. Yeah. And Especially saying, if they're connected to a, a brand or if they're... Or if, if they've made a brand for themselves. Or if they've made a brand for yeah, themselves, yeah. Absolutely. And that can get us down another road, which I think is really interesting, and we'll talk about it in a second, but let me finish my thought, is just that people get really upset because I think in that message of saying, hmm, I've come to this conclusion that it's not the theory that I was told, that I think it works by some other means. Mm-hmm. People hear you saying it doesn't work. And I'm ne- I've never said, actually, we're not getting changed or it's not working. And my clients would agree that it's working. All I'm saying is the explanatory model is maybe not right. Yeah. And manual therapy is like rife with anecdotal evidence. And that's kind of like the wormhole I went down is like, I got, I just, it was hard for me to believe that I can touch someone's skin and through my elbow or my knuckles or my fingertips, I'm going to deform their fascial 
tissue in such a way that it will help either give length. Like physically, my pressure will do that. That's right. going to lengthen it or break up adhesions, which, by the way, we actually, there's no proof that there's real, that there really are fascial adhesions. That right. Nothing that I've read. And so, so, so let's get into this for yeah. for anyone who's who might hear this and, and is wondering about what is fascia because yeah. this is like it's our in, it's pretty our, our everyday language. Just, but it's 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 um, I, I agree with you on this on this. It's really interesting, and and I and I have this conversation a lot with people about how I mean, we we can we can look at how we think we are manipulating different kinds of tissue, right? But the the reality is that especially with fascia, it's enervated. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, when, when it comes down to that kind of stuff, how does the, how does the nervous system, you know, perceive what's being done to it or, you know, or that's, that, that's, the, there's the autonomic part of the nervous yeah. system. Right. But then there's the, the person on the table, the, you know, the bigger person <laughs> we'll call it, right. you know, and, and how they're, they, they receive you, you know, in different ways. I think ways. that's a big piece of it, Jeremy. I mean, yeah. I think that's, I think that's partly why people get upset when you when you talk about this in this yeah. way is because I've I've been around and I've participated in a lot of conversations where people say I'm, what I'm saying or my friends who are really you know there's sort of these different camps that are popping up and I'm like saying maybe it's not fascia within my world of rolfing or within structural integration maybe it's this model and when people say toss out a, an alternate plausible uh, explanation for what it's happening then the old timers or people who've been doing it for a long time, they say, what, what do you mean it doesn't work? I've been doing this for 40 years and it works. Yeah. When I put my hands on someone, I feel it changing. I feel the body change. Yeah. And I say, yeah, I do too. Mm-hmm. But how do you know it's fascia? Yeah. You can't see in there. Right. You can't cut in there. If you cut in there, of course you could never know. Right. You can't know. And science, there's more and more studies that come out and say, it's not that plausible that fascia changes with physical force, with physical deformation. Yeah. But yet, in structural integration and other great manual therapies, we see people get out of pain. We see people move differently. We see people stand differently, yeah. sit differently, relate to themselves differently. What is that about? Yeah, I, I, that's, I, it's really interesting, too, because I've, I've had a conversation just recently with an older orthopedic surgeon who wants to come get treated by me and cool. has, has never had craniosacral therapy, but seems completely open to the idea, mm-hmm. especially after I've kind of explained the model to him a little mm-hmm. bit more. And I was telling him about an article that I read about how the orthopedic world is taking a different view on fascia mm-hmm. in, in that most likely we were fascia and the embryonic state right. is based is, is the fascia in, in Latin uh, for anyone listening is means glue mm-hmm. <laughs> it's turned into fascia when it's on the front of a house yeah, i'm not exactly. sure why but um but you know it's it's actually it's it's not just two-dimensional either and this is the way that i feel like somehow in in the way that i've heard people in rolfing talk about it sometimes i mean this could mm-hmm. all be in in how it's how it's been received by the student but i i, I think it's it's it, it because it goes to the depths of our dural membrane system and our, our, around our organs and all these different things mm-hmm. it's it is you know that what i was saying to this guy is i what what's being suggested is that maybe everything just grows into fascia you know mm-hmm. and, and in a way 
it's like it, with some people will say this it's kind of our second brain or it's it, it is just that we we like to we like to really pin everything down to the way information is stored as if it all it's all in a container like our head mm-hmm. but that it's actually happening all over the body there's memory response and all these different things and that's and that's another thing that's sort of hard for people to understand but this guy said i can i can buy that that you mean memory could that, be related that, to fascia or, somehow or, or that or that because because the way we think about from, from an orthopedic per- perspective of that everything's attaching to the the firm structure of bones right because mm-hmm. we think about it in terms of architecture mm-hmm. but a body is not an architectural piece that's mm-hmm. built from the ground up that way we are initially floating right right i don't know i mean when i think about when i think about this piece the idea of like or like why do i no longer really feel that it's about the fascia mm-hmm. is because um when you look through an anatomy book you know, like at rolfing school or maybe other manual therapies you flip through kind of a bunch at the beginning like skip a bunch of plates and you get to the ones about bones muscles fascia yeah oh connective tissue yeah. that's it that's yeah. our juice right right okay now uh 16 years later I've been studying a lot of chronic pain science. A lot of these guys like Lorimer Mosley and David Butler out of the Noe group in um, Australia. Really interesting work about what they call the biopsychosocial model of pain mm-hmm. and how a lot of times we can have pain, maybe residual pain from a site that's healed. So tissue should be fine, but we still have chronic pain there. Mm, yeah. So from studying with those guys, I start to think more about nervous system. Like, okay, yeah. what's the involvement of the nervous system? crack open anatomy books, start looking at stuff. And it just hit me one day. I opened it up at the beginning, all these plates I used to skip. And what do I see there? I see a human form primarily covered in all yellow. Hmm. Now for those people who don't really understand, who haven't looked at anatomy books much, yellow is like the color of the nervous system. And what that told me is that all these years that I've been saying I'm affecting Fascia, what I realized is there's no way I could affect fascia without first eliciting response in that person's nervous system. Right. Absolutely no way. And so I feel like Ida Rolf had a really great theory, and I don't mean her any disrespect. She's a brilliant person. She gave us really cool work that can help people change their, their lives, their relationship to their body and their pain. However, I think from my own personal experience of working with people over the years, I don't feel like I can really affect fascia, but I know I can affect nervous system. I can mm-hmm. know I know I can help the person experience themselves in a more clear way, which when I compare that when I when I bring that into my understanding of pain science now, we have things called body maps and they can be a smudge. And if there's in our homunculus, if that body map, if that sense of ourself isn't clear more than likely people can be more sensitive to pain and discomfort. Right. So what about if it's not about fascia, but it's about that interplay with my touch, my words, helping this person relate and get a new relationship to how they sense and think about themselves. Yeah. And clarifying things like these body map and movement patterns through touch and through words that really elicits the change. Yeah. And that's it. To me, that, that lands true. Yeah, both it, in my ideology and in my experience and practice. Yeah, it, it rings true for me too. And and the 
you know, we, we, we start out with some kind of model, right? right? Like yeah. we, we have to, and, and I, I even would say this about lots of different things that I've studied because I do movement-based work and mm-hmm. body work. I'm, I'm kind of looking at, at, I have, I, I struggle with both of these mostly because in the 20 plus years I've been doing this now, there's a lot of branding going on. This is a huge, this is one thing to remember too, is that we, Absolutely. we're working in a huge field now. Uh, it's a very, it's a, you know, from, from the uh, financial perspective, it's it's now a, a big money maker to be in holistic yeah, therapies, absolutely. and so the the businesses have risen <laughs> to meet to meet the demand of of therapy. Yeah, people have to carve out their territory. Yeah, but I I think like I I I haven't actually I haven't studied directly Ida Rolf, but I've mm-hmm. looked at a lot of different fascial models, and, mm-hmm. and certainly that stuff comes up, and I've and I've just because I've been curious about the difference between how rolfing versus this structural integration approach, which is... They're the same. Very similar, right? I mean... Structural integration is really like, uh, we consider it the blanket terminology for kind of all the different schools or modalities that essentially have risen out of Ida Rolf's original ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think maybe, maybe because some people say they're an SI therapist now... Well, that's because that has to... Are they trying to distance themselves No, no, it has to do with um, when Ida Rolf passed away, there actually was a split between her students. Mm. Yeah, an ideological split. And as I understand it, because I wasn't around when that happened, that was like, I think in the uh, early 80s or so. I should know my Rolfing history, but I don't. (laughs) But it happened sometime in the early 80s. And um, so, you know, she had given this idea into the world. Yeah. And she started to teach it to people. And it really affected people's lives in positive ways. And so her students were, of course, really passionate about these ideas and what they had been learning and furthering the work on their own. Yeah. But when she passed away, the sort of guiding light was gone. And yeah. her students were left to like figure out on their own, like, well, what do we do with this? Is this a perfect work that's just... Because when she taught it, as I understand it, at the very beginning, it was very methodical, very much. We call it a recipe today, and we don't we don't use it, in the, at least I don't use it in the same way that she taught it because I went to the Rolf Institute. Uh, let me back up because when the school split, when the, her students split, they've quick formed two schools. Hmm. One was called the Rolf Institute. Yeah. And the students in which that... Is, which is where? Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, okay. And then the students who who kind of created that school trademarked her name quickly and yeah. first, and they could be called Rolfers. And they're the only people you have to go to the Rolf Institute oh, to be called a you. Rolfer. Okay. And it's a legal thing. And their sort of ideology around it was that, look, she gave us this fantastic idea and this great work. We need to teach the 10 sessions in the spirit of Ida Rolf, but we need to further the work. So they kind of distilled these ideas of principles, Rolfing principles. The other faction was a group that said, no, this is the work. What she taught us is the work. And as I understand the way that she taught her students at the time was really very methodical, like three passes down the back, yeah, five passes here or there, you know, on the sole of the foot, like really like taking her by hand. Yeah, yeah. And so... I think, and they, and that second group of students formed something called the Guild of Structural Integration. Okay. So now, any other school that kind of riffs on the the Rolfing model, they can't be called Rolfers, but they could call themselves Structural Integrationists or Rolfing in the uh, Structural Integrationist Structural Integrationists in the Rolf method or something like that. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's yeah, this yeah. legal ease that you know 
muddies everything else further, but that's, right. that's how it is. And, and it's, it's these, it's these people who are, you know, real, you know, path pavers you like like uh, joseph pilates i, I hear yeah. the same thing in the pilates community that you know there's a lot of the same kind of discord going on there because of you know the the, the word of these people was everything and yet i think they were trying to bring something new to the masses and and one of the easiest ways to do that is to really you know methodize the approach to start and you know maybe maybe if we could have Ida Rolf in this conversation at this point, she might have a totally different view on what happened with her work as time Absolutely. went on. Absolutely, I think it's inevitable that she would weigh in, yeah, <laughs> and say, "Hmm, yeah, this sounds right," or "Oh, that's a, you know, I, I'm by far not the biggest expert on Ida Rolf sayings and stuff, but yeah. I, I know that there's a lot of content that you know both sides use to say. No, it's absolutely about fascia or, and then other people say, well, you know, at the time that she created her theories, we didn't know that we didn't have functional MRIs to understand right. things as like the, the role of the homunculus and, and what role does that play in proprioception? Can you, can you describe the homunculus for, sure. Are you, are you, are you pretty versed in it? Cause I, yeah, I'm I, good. I, I, can I, give I, a, I just saw, I just saw one at a, at a museum recently. Yeah. No, I, so here's how I talk about it in my practice to people. Because I, I, so I bring in these ideas now that I've learned through pain science and yeah. from other sources because I do think it's not about fascia all the time or ever. Yeah. <laughs> We're making change in these tissues, but it, the practitioner, me and you, are like the catalyst that elicits change through our touch and through our words and ideas that yeah. the client can then take in. So in my practice, I talk, about pe- I talk to people, especially people with chronic pain. I say, look, research is starting to show us, and you can find... David Butler and Laura Mosley, you can search for some of these ideas um, and you can get information about it. But it's starting to show us that when we have long-term pain, so chronic pain, which is actually on the rise in a lot of Western cultures. We're not exactly sure why, but it's on the rise. More and more chronic pain. Okay. One theory that we have about why chronic pain exists and kind of holds on is that there gets to be what's called a smudge in the homunculus. The homunculus, I tell people, is a part of your brain that imagine you were wearing a headband and it kind of sits right, and the headband's right in the top of your skull between your two ears. As I understand it, that's where the homunculus lives. Okay. And the homunculus, what it does is it's sort of every neuron of our body maps there. So because we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of nerve receptors in our palms and the bottoms of our feet, those areas of the homunculus take up a larger portion of the of that space in our brain than per se uh, our back, middle of our back. Right. Okay. And it's important to it's important for our body to have this system so that we can understand when we have a stimulus, when something's touching our skin or our body, that we know where it is. Yeah. And and, and most of them are are our big sense organs, right? So if you look at it, yeah. the, the the visual. That you see with a hum- when when they visualize the homunculus, exactly. hands it, are gigantic. He's got these gigantic hands, lips gigantic big. feet, big, huge lips. Yeah. Ears are a little bigger than normal, mm-hmm. and you know everyone. And I think nose is also a, right. little, a little bit. Everyone expects the like the genitalia to be, you know, bigger, but they're actually smaller. We we, we don't really sense that much from there. <laughs> Size doesn't matter, Jeremy. <laughs> it doesn't matter at all. Um, yeah. So, so so what happens is I tell people so it's important to have that really accurate sensing piece of our of our brain so we know 
when things are touching us, when we're coming into contact with things. And it allows us to also have that sense of ourself in space without having to look. Yes, exactly. Proprioception. Yes. And I tell people that's the cool skill that lets you roll over in the middle of the night, grab that glass of water on the floor by the side of your bed, keep the lights off, bring it to your lips, drink, put it back down without spilling all over yourself and making a huge mess. That's proprioception at work. You yeah. don't see yourself, but you know where you are. And the coordinating effort of, of all the senses mm-hmm. that creates these almost kind of multiple senses that we, Absolutely. we have a hard time to d- define that, I think, because mm-hmm. it, may, it may not relate to like one thing. It's really all of them in coordination or two of them in coordination or some, something. Yeah. And the cool thing, here's the interesting thing now, I'll, you know, just riffing on homunculus a little bit more. I've quick talked about body maps yeah. and smudges. Yeah. But what seems to be coming out in some fairly recent evidence, I think, or uh, studies is that, and I'm going to borrow this analogy from this guy, David Butler, because I think it's the most clear and, and elegant analogy of this. Yeah. Remember those, those boxes full of sort of pins as a kid, you put your hand underneath the pins and the pins where your hand, uh, touch your hand, rise up. Yeah. Yeah. You understand what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. And as he talks about it, he says, imagine that each one of those pins is like, 10,000 neurons Hmm. of information. So if we put our hand underneath this pin box and our hand pushes those pins up, that only... Makes the shape of the hand, sort of. Exactly. Yeah, it makes the shape of our hand. And no other pins come up. That is what we would call a clean body schema, a clean and clear body map. Yeah. But for some reason, sometimes you can get what's called a smudge. So maybe this time you put your hand underneath there. And all the pins in your hand push up and make the outline of your hand. But maybe there's a couple errant pins in between some fingers. Maybe there's a clump not even close to your hand. Yeah. That that would represent neurons that are being excited that don't really have anything to do with your hand. And in that in that example... With the, with the map. Exactly, with your map. That's an unclear map. It's called a smudge. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories is, is that when we have a smudge like that, um, the body, is, it's harder for the body to be really sure about the information it's getting and what part of the body is being informed. Yeah. And therefore, to keep us safe, it might interpret a potential threat. And erring on the side of safety, if there's a potential threat, then it seems like the nervous system creates pain. Yeah. Or, or it's, it, from what I've seen, and, and early on in my career, the reason that I kind of shifted from doing more massage therapy to craniosacral work is that I could, let's say someone comes into you or with the, the back has gone out type Mm -hmm. of thing, you know, which is usually that they have muscle spasms, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, it, sometimes it can be from, you know, an imbalance going on in the body where it's just kind of been pushed to a limit and all of a sudden everything just fires and stabilizes, right? Mm -hmm. It's just protective response. But that doesn't have to happen for a physical structural reason either. It can right. happen for emotional reasons. It can happen for because of because of a traumatic event or some combination of of stressors on that autonomic you know system where we've just the, that fight or flight response or the that side of the system and all the you know stress hormones, everything that's related to that and how it affects the body just gets pushed to a limit and mm-hmm. all of a sudden probably creates maybe a smudge even in that. In that, yeah. Know, when you read about brain. smudging, it's it's super interesting. Yeah. So smudging and clarifying are, are uh, it's like they're always happening. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I read that said if you if you take the three middle fingers of your of either hand, tape them together so it becomes like one big 
flipper paddle yeah, finger. Yeah, yeah. It only seems like it takes about four hours for that to start to register in your homunculus as one piece. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So now imagine the clients who have had a neck brace for weeks or months. Yeah. Or uh, some arm and a sling. Absolutely. Arm and sling, crutches, any of those devices that help us heal. Yeah. But leave a little bit of a mark. So, you know, I mean, I think with movement is one way to get it back. Yeah. And maybe then also body work or other things. Um, but, you know, what you talked about sort of starts to lead me down this idea of the, the biopsychosocial model of pain, the idea that maybe it's not always originating from the body. Maybe there's a component of the emotional piece or the relationship piece. Mm -hmm. The way that, as I understand pain science so far, is and what, this is what I like about the model that Lorimer Mosley and David Butler and others are putting forward and why it makes sense to me in my practice here is I used to see people and I would only work on their biology. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some people it totally would shift and other people, it was a little shift and other people it didn't shift. And it really frustrated me. And when I started to learn about this idea of biopsychosocial and the role of the nervous system in potentially sustaining a pattern of chronic pain, it was like a light bulb went on for me. It completed these pieces where I said, I'm getting people to change, but I don't believe it's by working with the fascia. Yeah. So what am I addressing? Gosh, maybe I'm maybe I'm somehow I'm alleviating these people's nervous systems or I'm helping them clarify a body map or I'm helping them feel safe and comforted. Mm -hmm. And that opens up something in within them that gives them some hope or some space to have a new relationship to the pain. So the biopsychosocial model would say, as an example, I use this in my office a lot. It's not always rooted in the biology. And that gets to your point a little while back saying maybe it has to do with the stress response that's chronic. Yeah. And you're getting, you know, all this cortisol or in, in neuroscience, there's a saying, if it fires together, it wires together. Right. I think that goes to explain a lot about how this biopsychosocial model works. Yeah. And I, I always try to explain this to my, to, to people who have sort of, especially depending on how long they've been living with something. I mean, I may get somebody who's, you know, fresh out of a car accident and right. knew they needed to get in and see me as, as soon as possible because they had some whiplash and that kind of stuff. Yep. But I may see somebody 10 years down the line who has also had, you know, uh, knee surgery and then multiple other, you know, little things mm -hmm. go on physically, right? And so there, there, there are all these different patterning pieces. And the way I try to explain it to people is that the, the nervous system works really well, almost like with the, the homunculus, right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it wears grooves so to yep. make, to make things easy so Follow that we can, groove. exactly. And, and but, so it's, yep. it's the reason that we can do certain things without having to think about it eventually. Like, you know, play guitar, your fingers just know the shape of the chord that you're playing or something, you know, something. Well, it has that to be that way. Otherwise we wouldn't survive. And, it, and right? it's, and because it would take too much energy for us. Well, to we'd have to relearn it every time. <laughs> every single time. Yeah, can you imagine trying to get up, wake up every day and be like, hmm, <laughs> how, how do I walk now? You know, how do I talk? How do I do anything? So yeah, we get those patterns. Yeah. So so going back to the the, the beginning of your career. You started. You, you went. You were an art student, correct? No, the very, very beginning. I was um, cross country skier. I did the sport of biathlon, which is the Winter Olympic sport of skiing and shooting. And I actually was a to member. what level? Uh, I did World Cups. I was a member of the U.S. national team for <laughs> yeah. two years, and that's actually how I got into body work. I started oh, to yeah, that makes yeah. Sense. I started to understand 
oh, you know, I want some recovery. I was looking for every legal edge, you know. I wasn't going to dope or anything like that, but I, if I could get more relaxation or I could train a little bit harder by uh, getting good massage, good body work, yeah. okay, I'll sign up for that. And that opened the door to different kinds of modalities of body work. And um, I ended up meeting these two women who I just really liked their the way that they approached body work. And then I found the thing that they had in common was that they were in the process to become rolfers. And I thought, what well, rolfing? You know, that I think I'd heard about it once or twice before, and it sounded really painful. And then, but these the way yeah. they worked was not painful. Yeah. And so I just you know bookmarked that in my mind, and then ended up um, ended up ended up sort of. I thought I was maybe going to be pre-med in, in college. And then I had some experiences that I decided I didn't want to do that. But I really, you know, being an athlete, I loved working with my body. And the body was so curious to me. Like just, you know, it's just, it's our, it's just the most mysterious thing I've ever known. And yeah. so it was just like, here's a, here's a way to work with it, you know? And that was interesting and exciting. So that's how I got started down rolfing. And I had, I had time one spring and actually I, I, paid my deposit to go to the Rolf Institute in Boulder. And then a week later, I found out I was named to the national team for biathlon. So it was a really exciting and kind of hectic period in my life. But it's, you know, it, it really went well together because then I was able to take what I learned at the Rolf Institute and apply it to teammates and experiences. And what, what did you do in, for, for college then? For What was your major? Uh, well, my road, my college road is a long and winding road. <laughs> I think I started off thinking I was pre-med then yeah. I lived in Germany for a year and yeah. I saw a different approach to health yeah yeah and I combined that with thinking I had a grandmother who died of Parkinson's or dementia and Parkinson's you know comorbidity of those two and and when she passed away she was just on like so much medication that it was really hard for me to believe that the medication didn't also play some role in her in her illness yeah not in her Parkinson's but maybe yeah. her dementia or just maybe in her yeah, yeah. being unwell and I'm not knocking Western medicine. I believe that there's a they help a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people. But I looked at that experience and I decided I didn't at that time want to be a part of that. I didn't. Right. Yeah. I, I saw a model in the U.S. that seemed to be much more about medicating versus in Germany when I was there for a year, doing sports and you know being sick and being well. I saw different approaches, much more open to natural remedies, yeah. much more open to nutrition, much more open to lifestyle yeah, lifestyle things I, I, like I, saunas you know yeah, like, I, yeah. I i think i had the same experience yeah. being in europe for college and then a friend of mine went to a grad program in belgium i ended up kind of going over there and yep. getting to you know experience the lifestyle a little bit more absolutely and, yeah. and it's not like they don't you know drink too much beer sometimes but yeah. i feel like their day-to-day -day, their relationships their work life everything just and mm -hmm. just the the even the spaces that they would create in in their day for getting together in the middle of a work day for coffee, coffee. and Sweden, they call it the fika. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I've, I've tried to bring some of that into my life, you know, here, mm -hmm. I think being in New York for a while, there's enough Europeans around and enough European influence that some of it exists, mm -hmm. but you know, the, the work day is also like 18 hours long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a, I went to the opposite coast, you know, I relocate. So I finished yeah, Wolfing yeah. school in 2002, actually opened my first practice for a year in Duluth. Okay. And uh, during that time, I, I had aspirations to go to someplace in, near Seattle to maybe study a natural medicine. Mm -hmm. Didn't do that. Kind of glad I didn't. Just a different path. And yeah. I got turned on to art and photography. And the reason, actually, the reason I 
feel like I got turned on to art and my create my creativity was through my actual experience of my Rolfing Ten series. Mm, but that yeah. could be another story. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's what I got from my Rolfing experience was like wow, explosion of creativity. But um, anyhow, so I got into art and I was already had been working for a year, feeling kind of like not believing in the theory of what I was doing, not sure how to gauge success or failure with clients. Mm -hmm. And then photography came along and became this really amazing connection with the world everywhere around me. Uh, Let me ask questions I wanted to ask and interact with things and create things and make things. So I jumped at it and I moved to San Francisco. And so a similar kind of thing as a big city, I had the um, real international feeling and I, I really soaked that up too and enjoyed that. And, I worked out there as a massage therapist for a long time while also having a rolfing practice and then finally just a rolfing practice. And then, so, so when you started, were you, were you, did you, did you kind of use a, a model to, to, mm-hmm. to work with people and, and how did that sort of shift and change and yeah. how, how long did that take? Uh, in some ways, that's what's kind of, you know, I tell people sometimes that I'm a sacrilegious rolfer. I'm sure some people would be really annoyed to say that, but <laughs> cause there's, I think, like I said at the very beginning, just because I say it might not be fascia doesn't mean what I learned doesn't work. Yeah. And so what I mean by that is I still think there's an importance in at least riffing on or following fairly closely the 10 series that I learned in Rolf Institute from Ida Rolf. Just because it's not fascia, like I said, doesn't mean I'm not getting changes. I am getting changes. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. I'm just trying to update the model. I mean, sometimes when I have these conversations about why is it important? One, I want to, I like the model I find I feel is to be more empowering to the client. I say, you have a role in this too. Yeah. I'm giving you ideas. I'm giving you information through touch and through word and through sources to go and read about to help you empower your own change a little bit. I'll be your partner in it. I'll be your catalyst. But it's not like I'm, it's not like I have a special secret power to melt your connective tissue. Yeah. And so I like that empowering, um, that new idea of working, say we're partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still follow a 10 series because I think one of the things like, you know, we talked about the homunculus. I think what happens in rolfing is over those course of 10 sessions, you help people consciously or unconsciously clarify the relationships in their body. Yeah, that, oh, makes, that makes sense yeah. to me. It, here's it, how my arm relates to my shoulder. And yeah. here's how my shoulder relates to my ribs or my shoulder relates to my hips. Oh, and I, and I give people small little homework, small little mindfulnesses to think about in between sessions that have really big impact, I think. And you know, a lot of people come back and say, I can't believe I never thought of that on my own. And it's like, well, I, you know, I'm not a genius. I just had somebody else tell me. So now I can share it with you because yeah. it is useful. And, and it's sort of how you engage with them in that process. Like, I, I think I, I, I've done this both in movement work and in, in body work where, you know, with movement work, I, early on, I, would, I was considered a trainer. I, I right. tried to get away from the idea of being a trainer because I think the, the stigma, for one, but it's, it's also, I'm not, I'm not here to be your babysitter and exercise. And, and I would kind of say the same thing about, you know, I, I think we... I, I never got drawn to the spa culture mm-hmm. of, of doing body work. I don't want someone to come in and lay down on my table and just take a nap mm-hmm. session after session. Every once in a while, if someone's been in a place and they just go, go there, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, 
but ultimately over time we're working we're working together with you know with something and i think that that homunculus map that we're sort of creating you know people how many times have people said like i oh I thought I was doing fine until you put my hands, your hands on, on this place, right? I was so tired. I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't or, even know, right? Yeah. And that's part of the mapping mm-hmm. is like, you know, I, this is where now in my, in like the different people that I go to for work, sometimes I, I like the, the, if I know what their work is about, I, sometimes I like the idea that they're going to kind of get in there and, mm-hmm. and move some tissue around. But I, but I also get a lot out of some people who do these like, really long strokes, you know, massage mm-hmm. strokes, and they're not necessarily working as deep, but it's very intentional. And there's kind of an energetic component and they're connecting, you know, hands between two places where I'm, I'm, I'm feeling relationships going on in my body and paying attention to those things, which is, you know, the, the, the most gentle version of that is kind of this craniosacral approach mm-hmm. where it, you know, if, if anyone watching it, you know, was, was to see what was going on. They, it's like watching grass grow. There's nothing, seemingly nothing Mm -hmm. going on, but for the person on the table, Mm -hmm. there can be a lot going on. And, and that part is, is that they are really tuning into that body mapping and this awareness that gets built. And, and I try to bring that into my, you know, movement sessions Mm -hmm. too, so that what people are taking away is really this new, you know, this, this way of mapping and being able to kind of get a sense of, of themselves in space. That, that mirrors in the gym aren't going to give you, you know? Yeah, no, no. Just seeing yourself doesn't mean that you're going to understand something new. Just because you watch yourself doesn't mean that, you know, it's, I mean, I, I'm not a talk therapist and I don't want to give the impression that I do work in here like a talk therapist, Right. but working on somebody with my hands can be a similar experience on a kinesthetic uh, mode. Oh, for sure. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, I touch somebody in their shoulder and it's sore and then you touch someone and you, maybe you move it and you find a different place and it was less sore. And then you have a you, you say, do you feel that? Can you bring your attention here to this place? Can you find this place? Ask for some movement as you're touching. There's a way that relationship yeah. is what unlocks the person to have a new yeah. understanding. I tell my clients this a lot. E.E. E. Cummings, the poet, has a quote. I that, love E.E. E. Cummings. Yeah, me too. He's, um, you know, when I first read him, it like it was like, whoa, I didn't even know it could be like this. <laughs> but he has a book. It's, it's called Six Non-Lecture. Six Non-Lectures. I think he, it was a series of lectures he gave at Harvard or something. But in there, there's a nugget that, to me, I have told probably almost every client I worked with. Because I think it is so applicable as to what, I, what we do in yeah. manual therapy. And the quote goes like this. It says, how can you know something that you've never been without? How like, can you know like, something like you've that. never been without? And you know, one thing I've never been without is my sense of myself. Hmm. As a, I had to learn how to crawl. Yeah. I had to learn how to sit up. I had to learn how to walk. Those neural patterns have always been with me, just like my shadow. So to turn it, in on yourself and really be clear and understand and explore that i think it's very very hard it's like a it's like a coin trying to understand its two sides it's it's important to give to somebody that you're going to work with through a process too because we we are a culture of fix me a lot of times absolutely because we we there there's a lot of victimization that goes on and so 
you're, you know, it, people almost kind of hit a bottom a lot of times where they're just finally like, I fix me. I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. But what you, but what we're really doing is, you know, trying to pull together all those parts that are th- this person, all the dynamic things that are this person and put mm-hmm. them, you know, help them find all that together and, and build the strength back up in, in whatever is going on, whether it's physiological or emotional or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think giving them that from the, from the start, I, I used to, I used to train body workers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I would, I would put a lot of effort into when I was, when I was starting training with them was, I want you to think about the session starting the minute that person walks in the door, even before that. I would say I think that that session starts when they call you. Yeah, but it, but and sometimes in in the place that we were at this point, they didn't right. necessarily get to talk. Yeah, sure. For, for you and I, for sure. But Absolutely. but but you know, I want you to almost start in, in, imagining what this you know in 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 hopefully a positive way, <laughs> right. what this is going to be like in this relationship and, and, and trust your instincts from the start. If, and that was the thing I noticed with a lot of people is that if they, if they didn't trust their instincts from the start, that was usually the part that, that caused that person coming in to sort of, you know, back, back up in, in, in getting involved in that mm-hmm. process. And, and talk and more I, about that. I mean, what do you mean following their instincts? You're talking about like, as soon as the person, the as therapist, soon as they see the I mean, person, they should start to imagine like, like how they would work with the person you mean? Or is it more, because I was thinking more like when, to me, like I, I think the first contact I have with a client, this is what I thought you were talking to at first, but maybe something different, but the first contact I have with a client, so via email or phone, yeah, to me, that is context setting. Oh, that yeah. is teaching them about therapeutic relationship instantly. Yeah. And uh, I think more important than any tool, any technique, What's most important to outcome for a client, positive outcome, is the uh, richness of uh, and safety that's felt in therapeutic relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that's, that's, that, that, that's no, that's kind of what I'm getting at. In, yeah. in, the, in this situation that I was in, somebody else was taking scheduling, right? So they because oh, they're new therapists mm-hmm. and they they, were, they weren't private. They were building their practice within uh, mm-hmm. you know a, a, another an establishment mm-hmm. but for you and I that's that's always the case is that that it's that relationship building but that's what I kind of wanted mm-hmm. them to understand is right. that you're the minute that you start working with them it's starting to happen in in, mm-hmm. in dialogue and in interaction in mm-hmm. in your ability to listen to them and just be in and just create that space for whatever they need that's that's a hard thing to start with for some people we're, we're used to you know I think controlling things a little bit more or even getting in that fixer mode too much, you know, mm-hmm. and when, Absolutely. when, when I think people are actually, you know, we're trying to help them get involved in their process early on. I, you know, I, I that's one of the things I'm always trying to do with, with my clients is to understand that they don't necessarily need me, mm-hmm. you know, long-term that, you know, I'm here as part educator, you know, partner through this process with my given skill set, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm 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 not going to do all the hard work. <laughs> that that leads me to something that I've sort of thought about and maybe decided about in the last years, especially as I've started to really open up like what's happening here and trying to think about that and question everything that I was told. The idea of uh guruism. Yeah. I just don't have interest in being a guru. Yeah. Because Again, like the 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 approach that well, first off, it it just it's annoying to me <laughs> when you are like paying money for a class and and then 
what I kept finding so often was like what was being given to me or conveyed to me was primarily anecdotal, uh, you know, you know, an N equals one experience that this teacher was giving to me as if it was universal, true, universally right, true right. with clients. Yeah. And, and to me that, and I'm not trying to knock all my teachers. I've had, I've had great teachers throughout the years too. Amazing people. But there, I think in this work, because I think, to be honest, we do work in a field that's hard to really do quality studies on, scientific studies and research yeah. studies. It's hard to really qualify and quantify how does manual therapy work. I mean, people are trying to still figure that out. So because there is so much gray space, I think it's very easy to sort of fall into like pseudoscience. Yeah. I mean, I find we're always like walking that edge. Yeah. And that brings us kind of full circle around this whole conversation a little bit about, or at least to the very beginning, this idea of like, I think it's my duty to try to tell my clients I'm a rolfer. I don't think it's about fascia anymore. That doesn't mean you're not going to experience some change. And I'm telling you this because I'm trying to be as up to date with the science and research as I can. And what I found is that um, really the better approach is to be partners and collaborators in this. Mm-hmm. And as long as I feel like as long as I take that tack, I will not fall into the camp of being somebody's guru. It won't be about my ego so much. Yes, it feels good when you help people. I like right, that feeling. Right. But but long term, you're not going to help them. Right. And, and long term, I want to teach someone ideas about how to relate differently to themselves and to their their struggle and their their feeling and their pain. Yeah, and I I have the exact same yeah. thing. It's, this has I come was up feeling a few, that, yeah. It's come up a few times on the podcast, but I I had an experience with it early in my career where I, I was almost kind of ready to quit in some ways mm. because I I felt like everybody wanted me to be a guru, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure exactly what shifted for me, but I think there was a couple of solid decisions about, um, you know, the expectation of what people were going to get from mm-hmm. from doing the work, like. It's yeah, you know, it's heavy. It's and, and because I, 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 and I had, a, had some teachers early on who sort of explained, you know, some things and how to how to deal with this with some people because, you know, you you can't make someone relax on a table. Mm-mm. You know, that's not, you know, you might you might have a few a few tricks. You know, you can yeah. you can tell them to breathe and do different kinds of things, but, you know, if someone if someone's been sort of, you know, holding on to, to tension for some period of time or if there's if there's just a lot of ingrained stuff in their system mm-hmm. you you're, you're not going to get that to happen that change to happen in a session mm-hmm. and, and i think we as as helpers we're we so want to make this thing happen that mm-hmm. we we take all that on personally and i somehow I've, something shifted and that i was able to kind of like step away from that and really early on get people involved in their own process That's of cool. yeah. of you know I, I, I some something that you said earlier, you know, of, of uh, I don't I don't remember what the terms were, but basically you 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 it was it was your quote. T- tell me the quote again. Uh, e. e. Cummings. How can you know something that you've never been without? Uh, there was another quote earlier from from somebody else. Maybe I'll have to come back to I have it. Have to find it. Um, but it but it was it was it was um, I think it was from the uh, one of the Australian guys. But but it was it was you know this this idea that. We are we are sort of in this, you know, every everything is kind of in this container in some way that we're going to have to we're going to have to address in some way, which mm-hmm. is our 
our oh, if our, it fires together, it wires together. Yeah, and yeah, it's like in like kind of a premise of neuroscience, I think. And 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 we're you know every there, there's there's so much happening with any individual that we're 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 going to continuously peel back layers of of everything that's become ingrained in us, mm-hmm. and if we're going to do the work. And, well, so that leads me to. Uh, I don't know if these quite qualify as platitudes, but the nuggets I give my <laughs> clients, and it's really something, I forget where I read it. Is I didn't come up with it again, but it has to do with this idea of collaboration and empowerment. And I tell clients, I said, look, here's the, here's the real truth about this. It's like, this can help you. I can, I can be of help to you. However, I see you for 75 minutes once a week. That means you have six days and around 22 hours (laughs) that I'm not seeing you. So what we try to do in here is we try to give your nervous system and your body and you consciously some new ideas. How does your parts and pieces relate? And then I'm going to give you some ideas about how to think about those ideas outside of my office because you have to employ them. And here's the the little nugget because I tell people, if you put the same input in, you're more than likely going to get the same output out. Yeah. So when you're not in here, it's my job to have given you something to touch back on that can help you find new input to put in so that we can jog that output. But I can't do that for you. I can't right. do it. Right. And I, I tell people, you should write post-it notes or do those things to help you remember. I try to like link the ideas of movement and awareness, because I do think a lot of what we teach people is how to really feel themselves and be aware. And I try to link these little activities to like, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, think about this. When you're cooking your food, pay attention again to this kind of thing. So that it is the experience that happens in my office is somehow taken with you into your life and anchored out in your real life a little bit. You don't have to go to a special place to do it. No, you do it at home. But you got to put different input to get different output. Yeah, you got to. And and the, the, those those little cues I think are very important to sort of send people away with. But mm-hmm. even just what you were talking about of, I mean, it is only seventy five minutes out of your week. But there's it, it it's almost kind of like uh, what we were talking about with the European experience of like, but you are giving yourself this space also. Oh, I think that's super to, important to to do this work, you know, and, and to carve out that space and. When we get to a point where you're, you know, the, the symptomatic stuff is is down, you still need to keep carving out the mm-hmm. space for yourself. This is part of the process. The healing process is actually mm-hmm. the space itself. Yeah, we. I mean, we keep dancing around the. I haven't really got into this, the biopsychosocial model as I understand it mm-hmm. from uh, the Noe Group or David Butler. I mean, maybe maybe those guys wouldn't even say it's their model anymore. I'm not sure exactly, but this idea of biopsychosocial. In a nutshell, so we have acute pain and chronic pain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, just for the sake of this argument or this discussion, because I'm not arguing with you, hopefully. <laughs> see, see, I'm already conditioned that it's an argument. Shouldn't be. In this discussion, let's just say anything that, any pain that you've had for less than 12 months, let's call it acute. Yeah. Maybe there's still injury that's resolving. But more likely, if you've had pain longer than 12 months, there's a. it seems like there's a really good chance that... The, the biology, the tissue piece where the original injury was, it's, it's probably healed. But if you think about that premise of fire together, wire together nervous in the nervous system, mm-hmm. that it's the 
connections that were made potentially at the time of the injury or the event that uh, maybe have, as they call it in the pain and biopsychosocial, they call it a neurotag or a neuro. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier this idea of a groove or a record groove. Yeah. Like the nervous system can kind of fall back into this pattern yeah. that can drive that experience of pain for further. And so in order to break that or work with that, you have to, yes, maybe address the biology a little bit, which we can do on the table. But I introduced the ideas to people about, well, what's the stress level in your life like? Because physiologically, if you're really stressed, cortisol goes up. If cortisol goes up, your nerves become more sensitized, more sensitive. Yeah. So you might feel these things that are causing your nervous system to be more reactive again. So if you're really stressed, we gotta like re- you got to find ways to reduce the stress. I'll brainstorm that with you, but I can't do that for you. Yeah. What are the relationships in your life? Are they supportive or are they taxing? And again, I can't resolve those things for you, but we can at least drop the idea in for you. And so the biopsychosocial model would say that the biology is a, is a piece to really help people who have this long-term chronic pain. You need to help them sleuth what other factors in their life might be contributing to this pattern of the neurotag getting stuck and saying, problem, threat, need to make yeah. a little bit of pain. Yeah. You need to do something. Because pain, what is pain? Pain is something our nervous system creates for us when um, when it, it says, I'm not sure about something. I mean, yeah. when it's accurately, when there's like a broken leg, that's an accurate interpretation of a problem. But when that broken leg has been healed and you still have pain one, two, three, four, five years later, there's a chance that there's a, a misinterpretation of information. And what pain is, is the nervous system saying, again, when, you're, when your leg is broken and you have pain there, that's necessary to help you heal it. So change your behavior. Don't walk on this leg. But when that leg is healed and you still have ongoing pain, chances are there might be a way that the nervous system is misinterpreting information thinking there's still a threat, trying to make you change behavior, but right. it doesn't need to change yeah. that behavior. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how this fits into the model. Maybe this is yeah. This is just uh, observations, but just over the years I've seen, you, you kind of brought it up a little bit, but I've seen also, let's say, someone gets into a car accident around the time that their father died, mm-hmm. right? So you have these, you have these kind of right. commingling events, mm-hmm. and... You know, maybe they 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 you know they they have an injury in the car accident. It's it's not life threatening, but it's enough that it it seems to linger and it's just not getting better. Mm-hmm. And you know, a couple of years later, they're just like, I can't seem to get my shoulder is just still. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're totally explaining the biopsychosocial. Right, I've I've done yeah. I've done MRIs and blah mm-hmm. blah blah. But I think there are these there are these you know pieces that create there that are anchors in that in that you know. Um, wiring, you know, and, and it, it fires can, together, it wires together. And, and, you know, so, so, so those are pieces together. So, so, you know, and grief is one of those things that's, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes, you know, it, it's, it, there are waves of it. It's not, it's not like a mm-hmm. constant thing. And so the pain is in the same kind of waves a lot Absolutely. of time. Only, only, only it's harder to identify the grief yeah. than it is the pain because the pain yeah, is you maybe of, thought you got over the grief. Right. Right. The pain is like right there stabbing you in the shoulder. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's right there, and and I do. It's think, right in my shoulder. I, I think being able to identify yeah. it is part of it, um, but there is there there are there are other there are different ways in, and yeah. I think you know, body work is is an interesting thing. Like you've been saying, I 
I, I don't always think that it's, it's about the physical thing that my model is that I'm, that is helping mm-hmm. someone through a situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's my presence, you know, at, yep. maybe, maybe that's enough even for some people. You oh know, man, a, I think we are, we live in, um, a really touch starved yeah. society. Yeah. And I think people are really busy and a lot of, um, they're being pulled in so many directions, work, social life. And now we also have social media, which is just like, I mean, I catch myself. Mm-hmm. What did I do before I had a phone? I probably read a book or just relaxed. I didn't let my, I let my brain relax. Now I go home, my kids go to sleep. Uh, my wife and I are cruising on, on our phones, Facebook. Yeah. So your brain's always working. I mean, it's just, so I think, I think you're right. I think sometimes people might come to us and they say, I've got, I've got this going on and that going on. And they maybe do have those things going on. Not to say that's not real, but there's a deeper craving to just be seen, to be heard, to be touched, to be supported. And that's, I think that's also something that happens here. And I don't think that's any less important. I think this, again, I, I alluded to the fact that I think therapeutic relationship is like, that's the foundation for the entire thing. Hmm. I think so. You got to hear people and, and then you can try to do some techniques on them. But if they don't feel heard, you don't have it. Yeah. There's, there's some, there's a great quote about that, about, um, that, that it's, it's, it's like the most innate part of humans is basically just to be recognized. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that simply. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's, we, we wear so many different hats, whether it's, you know, for our family or for our job or for our yeah. children or, you know, whatever it is that, that, that it's, it, we, we, we're, we're, we're not necessarily recognized as holes to everybody. And I think mm-hmm. when someone actually comes into one of our spaces and gets to be acknowledged that way and gets to yeah. express all of those things, it, it can, I think, change their, you know, their, their, their nervous system, their, their, their well. even their physiology. I agree with you with all that you just said. And I think there's also like um, a physiological or a neuroscience pattern that could also explain it. Yeah. There when you were is. a baby, when you were a baby and you cried, did your mom or dad come and pick you up? Yeah. They touched you. And what happened to you? In your little nervous system, oxytocin flooded your system. You felt safe. And you felt calm. And they put you back in bed. And they did that over and over and over again. All through your life until you left the house in one way or another. Yeah. So when people if you come were on lucky. our table. If you were lucky, if you're lucky right, right? No, absolutely. If you're, if you're lucky and you had that, you know, nobody has a perfect relationship with their family. But if you had support yeah, of a nurturing yeah. family, that was your story. And so for a lot of people, I believe that that response still happens. Mm-hmm. I think. You know, they've shown if you get an hour of body work, they've done blood, blood testing, hormonal testing, do a blood draw before cortisol's at a certain level. They do an hour of touch massage, you know, touch therapy, some sort of mental therapy massage. And after an hour, cortisol has dropped oxytocin and testosterone go up. So I do think that there's an argument that whether or not someone knows that's what they're needing or craving yeah. or coming to, they're getting that. And that feels restorative and it feels important. And and, on, and then you can make the argument that on a physiological level, if we get cortisol to drop, 
we know cortisol is inflaming, you know, oxytocin can help us heal and starts a different kind of pattern of, of, of things happening in the body that can be restorative. Yeah. And if we can be a piece of that through, I mean, as simple as that, you know, I think that's probably what I first, you know, we get so frustrated before is like, I think it's human nature to just overcomplicate everything. Yeah. I touch you. It feels nice. It does something good for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. I don't have to decide whether necessarily it's fascia or this or that or this or that. Yep. If I can be a safe, good presence, I can listen, I can brainstorm with you about how to feel better, about why you might not be, and then add that touch piece. I mean, that's that's pretty profound. I would love to know more exactly, but you don't always know. Yeah. And I try to read a lot of studies about it. And I, I talk to my clients as best as I can from that lens. Uh, but I also want to just also, I don't shut the door on the sort of mystical side too, of that happens because oh, absolutely. you've had too many weird experiences of just big shifts happening that you wouldn't expect. And I don't know how to explain it from the science I read or this right. or that either. So, you know, it's somewhere in the middle and that's, what's so strange about that's relationships you know. too. It's that it's, you know, there, there are so many of these, like, I, I love the simplicity part of what you're talking about because mm-hmm. it starts with, with that. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's a, like the, a building block of mm-hmm. like touch makes me feel better. It releases all these things. Mm-hmm. We know that we're super dynamic creatures. And so we also need to sometimes make sense of this or have someone to talk through some of this mm-hmm. stuff with, which is what we also kind of can do for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's another part of that relationship and and you're you know you're you're a lot of times listening more than you're doing anything else because you're you're really trying to like figure out what does this person need in terms of uh support here and and mm-hmm. you know maybe you know knowing that if you're going to give them direction it's got to be also very simple like i have i have kind of a rule that i i you know if i'm doing some kind of work with people i never give them more than three things to do no my the stuff i give them to do at yeah. home takes like 20 seconds yeah yeah because again, I don't want to be an extra burden. Exactly, it needs to keep it something manageable and interesting. That oh, what what would it be like if I try that? Oh, it was easy, and oh, it felt I did feel something different. Yeah, or, and it's important. So uh, do you have any any rituals for yourself that you do, like health rituals or anything that you kind of help to keep yourself balanced? Um, I get lots of hugs from my two kids. Yeah. Right now, now I, it's like my wife would laugh at me because we've been together for a good number of years, over 10 years. And, um, it's, you know, I used to be a national team athlete, super fit, and since my wife's known me I'm like I need to start running again <laughs> and I don't I go in spurts and so yeah, yeah I'm always like oh I need to take care of myself better I used to love uh, I used to swap people trade people uh, body work but sometimes I don't like that either I like the I'd rather just maybe pay because then I don't I can just yeah, show I'm up the, and I'm just experience way. I don't have to feel about exchanging back and but yeah no right now I mean what I like to do is um, I cook a lot of good food a garden. I play claw hammer banjo. Hmm. 
I'm lucky that I'm in this practice building stage again, having just moved back from San Francisco. So I, I have a good amount of clients, but I still have time. So I take care of yeah. my kids. And that's when I get the aforementioned hugs. Yeah, the oxytocin. Yeah, I get the I get my <laughs> oxytocin boost exactly. It's the best. Yeah. Do you do you um do you have a working definition of health that you try to use with like when you're, you know, trying to help someone figure out what that place might be for mm-hmm. them if they're if 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 they feel like they're really out of balance, or for yourself? For yeah, I mean. I guess I don't know if I would say I've like decided here's my working definition of health, but um, what I think about is sometimes I think people, especially because I, I do see a good number of people with, with chronic pain or with ongoing pain, and and I think a lot of times people think it's all or nothing. Like either I have pain mm, yeah. or I don't have any pain. And I try to help people understand like, well... As a um, professor in art school called it, we have we have these meat puppet bodies, and they are prone to having discomfort. So the question is, what are the things that you want to do, and how do we get you to the place where you feel you can do that? And that may not mean that you have zero pain, but hopefully you have less pain, or you're relating differently to your pain. And if you're otherwise able to go along your life and do the things you want to do, that's probably that's probably a good picture of health. Yeah, if, if you're not so distracted by whether it's yeah, you know, you're able to think your thought, think thoughts about like, wow, it's a blue sky today. That's beautiful. Yeah, because I think for people who have tons and tons of pain, it's hard to find those minutes. Knock on wood, I, I don't have that experience, so I only have to guess at what that's like. But you know, um, I think that to me would be health. Like you're able to sort of live under your own agency and do the majority of things that you would like to yeah. do and and your body allows and facilitates that and, and your brain and your body are sort of working together. So something like that along those lines wasn't so eloquent, but no, know. that's, I think that's, it, it, it is kind of, I mean, I, I like to get these things because I feel like it's changing all the time. Like I could ask you this question in a week and you mm-hmm. might give me a, you might add some little piece to it or say, mm-hmm. you know, I, had this experience that I think this is actually something that's really important. That's mm-hmm. part of this. So I, I think, I think we could, we could, we could answer this a million different ways, but mm-hmm. I, I actually really like that, that, that sense of, uh, we, 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 we almost kind of all need to kind of, and I, I use this a lot of time with my, with my people as, as a means of, of getting people motivated mm-hmm. for their, for themselves. If, if they, certainly if they've been struggling with chronic pain mm-hmm. or, some kind of dysfunction for well, for some yeah, period or of just time. even relating to their their bodies. Some I get a lot of people who are just like I just don't I don't know I don't feel myself the way I used to feel. And yeah. So so I'll choose something that's like their passion mm-hmm. and and say like you know let's let's use that as a gauge maybe right. right yeah. I ask them well, what what aren't you doing that you want to try to do and 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 then we can keep checking in with that thing and mm-hmm. say you know if, if if what you want to do is you know play guitar or mm-hmm. you know go on bike rides with your kids or whatever it is mm-hmm. then then we have this this marker that we can kind of keep going back to and saying have you been able to you know do yeah. any biking lately and mm-hmm. you know you hear back oh yeah it's great i didn't actually i didn't feel bad i exactly. actually felt a little better afterwards or yeah. you know cuz i think we also can can if if we if we've you know been in a place i've I've had some chronic pain so i I kind mm-hmm. of know a little bit more, but you can get to a point where you you start to identify 
as a person with it. Oh, absolutely. I see that with my clients and, for sure. And then, and then it becomes the focus, not only of, uh, you know, for yourself because you're feeling it or because, you know, it's, it's something that you're, you're aware of when you feel it. And so you kind of keep saying, you know, I'm in pain. And, but, but everyone starts to relate to you then and who knows that you're struggling or every therapist that you talk to, it's well, like, you're yeah. also that person with pain. And I think you can, yeah. you can become this, this other person who, you know, likes to cycle mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and still have and, some pain and might have still have some pain at times. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's a really, um, important piece is that um our story does become a part of how we relate to ourselves and our pain so when we have chronic pain for maybe it's again use it in this discussion year or longer you know there's a lot of emotion around that what's wrong with me is it broken and i should take care of it i shouldn't use it i should so we start to use our body less and less sometimes i've seen this pattern at least a lot with clients and because because we are taught to believe that if we have pain it means that there's probably a problem or there's damage and there's a lot of studies that are starting to look at the correlation between pain and again damage or stuff and it doesn't it's not a one-to-one correlation Mm -hmm. and uh so one thing we find is like maybe actually by going and doing something if you like biking, even if you have a little pain, try biking a little bit. See what that feels like. You don't have to go for a hundred miler right away. Yeah. Go for two miles. Go around the block. But the movement can clarify body map. It can get oxytocin pumped up. Yeah. It can raise endorphins. It can um, change your personal narrative about your capabilities. And all those constellations uh, go back to uh, it's a different input. So you might get a different output. Yeah, But if you keep you just keep doing the same thing and you keep sitting with the fear or the worry or the resentment or the anger towards the pain or to the thing and and you're not moving and you're not you're not you're just going to kind of be there you know and so i i always encourage clients look try to do a little movement try to do a little bit of what you want to do see how that shifts it first first steps absolutely yeah yeah i mean that's you know i heard someone talk about why so many adults stop learning how to play a musical instrument Mm. And they said basically it's because they have super unrealistic expectations. Yeah. A little kid doesn't care either way. Yeah, they make horrible sounds and they think it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, an adult can't learn all all of the uh, chords on their instrument, and they stop. Yeah, that's unrealistic. You only need three chords for most songs. Yeah, and and it's the same for people with pain. I don't think that you should expect to like have pain one day. And then suddenly have zero pain the next day and be able to absolutely do every activity that you want to do. Yeah. Hopefully you can start to do that and you have to, you have to do something different, different input, different output. Yeah. And and I think we, we, we became, you know, overly reliant on, on Western medicine and, and it's, it, you know, Western medicine is amazing. Really. We have to like say, the the, the fact that we've, we've figured, we've, we've figured out as much as we have in the last 100 years or less Mm -hmm. is incredible, Mm -hmm. but it, it, it's, it, it kind of took us out of the equation a little bit in, in terms of, yeah, exactly. I tell people a lot, if I'm in a car accident and I have limbs hanging up, you know, bring me, bring me to the emergency room. That's where I should be. If I want to uh, 
maybe be more preventative with nutrition or, you know, then there's different avenues to get different information. There's other, you know, and, and I just think it's worth, it's worth trying to educate yourself yeah. for I, yourself. I, I do it with, because I had this, you know, chronic pain period. I've, I've kind of gone in and even had some like workups from time to time. I have someone that I've worked with for a while who has, you know, said, you know, check in with it every five or, you know, seven years or so. Yeah. And let's just, let's just monitor it. Only if if you know, if things if you feel like yeah things aren't feeling great let's just let's just look at it again sometimes you know because it, it was a it was really an issue with my spine mm-hmm. that is probably not going to go away knock mm-hmm. on knock on wood here I've I've been good for like you know twenty two years so that's that's a pretty amazing thing and biopsychosocial and biopsychosocial you probably but, related learned how to handle your story differently I mean there's a lot of Absolutely. And you could look at me structurally in an, in an MRI or X-ray and find a lot of stuff. Let me tell you. Well, <laughs> but, but I think I, that's another point we haven't talked about yet, but yeah, but, but I think, yeah. I think I could, I could, it's, it's, it's a tool. It's, it's just mm-hmm. another tool. And, and I find it, I have, I have some, uh, this full body scan that, that was done of me when I was 27, wow. seven years old that I've taken to a bunch of different things. And it, it's interesting to have that now when I, you know, every once in a while, if I'm working with somebody new, I'll say, you know, I had this problem. I have this full body x-ray. Mm-hmm. They did measurements in my bones. We did mm-hmm. all these different things. They are what they are. If you'd like to look at it, you can check it out. And mm-hmm. people are so curious as I was. And I, and I think you mean uh, physicians or you mean uh, if I've worked with an orthopedist or a PT it, or somebody over, yeah. over time, because I, I, I want them to kind of get you know what they get with their hands but there's also this other tool which they can this you know this this scan that they can look at and and be like oh this is really interesting mm-hmm. you at 27 years old mm-hmm. right so so we have we we have that part of things which has developed at, out of you know this scientific tradition that's also pretty incredible <laughs> sometimes well, that also in, blows it, me away it is incredible but i'm just going to drop this into the mix i mean i'm not I'm not advocating in any way that people should not get MRIs or should not get X-rays, but you can find there's a good number of studies that are they they're trying to say, um, how do we know that the things that we that are showing up on these imaging techniques are always the cause of someone's pain? Is yeah, it, we, is it just like again, just, just like we don't know whether or not we're affecting fascia? Exactly, I can't. So I, I can't say that I'm not changing fascia or nervous system. Yeah. And the studies that, uh, that I talk to clients about, and it's not to say that imaging is bad or wrong. Right. But when you have someone who has chronic pain and has imaging that hasn't shown anything abnormal, then I always like to tell these, this about these studies that there's a good number that have done, been done that they said, well, who, who gets imaging done in general? People who have pain. Because people who have pain go to the doctor. So the doctor is not, in general, prescribing imaging to be done on people who do not have pain. Mm-hmm. So there's a handful of studies that um, started looking at the spines of people who are asymptomatic for back pain. No back pain. Mm-hmm. And what they found was uh, herniated discs. They're also a mess. Let's have joint aberrations. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, in this study of people who had no back pain... A hundred percent of the eighty-year-olds had multiple cervical disc bulging, you know, disc yeah. bulges, yeah. and they didn't have pain. So that's not to say that disc bulges 
don't cause pain, but it's just saying they don't always cause pain. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's really important for a lot of these people to hear, in my opinion, who come with chronic pain. Yeah. Because it can help say, look, I'm not just making this up. There are studies I can direct you to that you can find that will show you that just because you've seen this doesn't mean that that is causative. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who actually uh, have back pain, and when you x-ray their back, it looks like super healthy. So that, that, again, to me, just points the needle a little bit towards this. There's a nervous system component. Yeah. Like maybe some people are more sensitized to feel things or more sensitive. And so it takes less to have yeah. them interpret something as pain. Other people are able to lumber on and not be able to be phased. And, and, and what I find by telling, by, by telling people about these studies is that it often can kind of be the key that offers some hope and cracks open the door to let them say, gosh, I have this pain, but I've had it for a long time, so maybe I should try to move a little bit through it. And what happens? Yeah. Oh, gosh, they move through it, and it starts to get a little bit less. And then it starts to... And I think, I actually think that the that the model is is shifting. And I think there are, I mean, just from my experience, mm-hmm. I had, I tore my Achilles tendon mm-hmm. four, four years ago. <laughs> so that was a pretty big deal. Ouch. And, you know, I... From that experience, and just the, I've I've done a lot of you know work with people with like uh, hip and and shoulder stuff. Mm-hmm. That you know, we're, I I find more orthopedic surgeons and and PTs willing to entertain the fact that surgery is not is not going to answer the, it's mm-hmm. not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And and cool. and and, I, and compared to you know the earlier part of my career where I was seeing laminectomy after laminectomy. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I don't see that many of those actually right, right. now. Right, you know, and and again, you know, there are trends. There are these things mm-hmm. that, well, once it you know makes a medical journal or the New York Times or whatever, it's like suddenly it's it's in the zeitgeist, and now everybody has this thing, right? Well, there's studies that have been done on. Um, I'd have to look it up for you, but I know I read it. Sham knee surgeries. Mm-hmm. Looking, you know, so double blind people come in and. You either got the real surgery or you didn't. They went through the whole procedure oh, yeah, as yeah. if. Oh, I've I've heard about were, this. Yeah, they're opening up the cements. They're opening up the solvent or whatever. They're using the equipment to. Yeah. So the person at the table assumed that they are always getting it, and they had people who received the quote sham surgeries, mm-hmm. who came in in wheelchairs and walked out under their own power. How do you explain that? Yeah. So. Again, I mean, it's cool that it's, so that, it's, 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 it's cool it's, that maybe there is a yeah. rethinking. Like, okay, well, how is this working? And I mean, yeah. at least we just uh, you know we don't cut anybody, <laughs> you know. But yeah. I think there's a similar mechanism at play, and it's and it's placebo effect that no one wants to talk about. Which is, um, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, but Upledger has a great quote about hmm. you know Dr. Upledger who started mm-hmm. the craniosacral method. But he he had this great quote about um, someone asked him in, in a course of um, in you know a, a big. Uh, um, sort of medical Some conference, yeah, and and said, well, how much of this do you believe is p- placebo? Mm-hmm. And and he said, you know, that basically placebo is just an indicator of our own, you know, creative ability to to heal ourselves. Yeah, uh, you know, and and on all those different levels. So th- these kinds of things, I think, blow people away, and it's mystical. But yeah. the, one of the things that I I always kind of remind my you know clientele is that. I'm I'm only because because again back to the guru thing that we talked mm-hmm. about earlier they really want to say like you healed me 
Mm-hmm. You know, and and what I try to kind of get them to understand is that I'm tapping into this innate healing mechanism, which is both physiological, you know, spiritual, emotional, mm-hmm. all these different components that you are also, you know, mm-hmm. that you naturally have and that you can tap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's like very consciously and sometimes it's unconscious. And, and Absolutely. it's a huge, it's a huge field of medicine that will, and why we don't quite understand and why this conversation has gone for so long is we don't quite understand it all. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I thought about bringing placebo a few times in the conversation because, I mean, I was like, do, should I talk about it or not? But I feel like a big piece of what happens in here is really placebo. Yeah. No, everybody listening, don't think that like, you know, you know, nothing happens. No. Like Jeremy just said, it's to me, I think placebo, if you can elicit a placebo response, it's like one of the highest medicines. You've done your job somehow. And I'm not trying to put myself at top of pedestal of all medicine. It's not that at all. Like all medicines, all modalities, if you can elicit placebo response, that's not something we should like be running away from. Yeah. That's something we should be running to. And if we can help our clients shift their pattern of pain and by touching them and setting a good context, being great listeners, you know, strategizing with them about how to shift their life. And it, it, it aligns just right to, to allow a placebo response to happen or elicits it, or I'm not even sure how it happens, but if that happens, that's awesome. That's like the best outcome. And I don't think it's because I do think it has to do it is placebo. I mean, I call it placebo. Yeah. Well, I think we, we got to figure it out. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Can I give one plug for um, a website that I don't get any kickbacks from this, but we've talked about a bunch of things here quick in this. In this yeah, segment, yeah. Like um, body maps, um, chronic pain stuff. There's a free resource that I tell all my clients to come to see me to check out. It takes about 15 minutes to look at. It's really useful at kind of breaking this down and explaining because understanding how chronic pain works through the biopsychosocial model of pain, which to me seems like the most likely at this point in time with our knowledge that we know, accurate understanding of like probably what's happening with pain. It takes a little leap of faith to say, "Mm, that's different than I believed about myself and about my body. And so to break it down piece by piece and in like a sort of PowerPoint presentation, this website does that and it takes you about 15 minutes to go through it. And the cool thing about this is uh, this, the research that uh, the NOE group in, in Australia is doing shows that even by getting this education, people have a positive re- self-reporting in uh, decrease in their pain levels. Okay, so here's the website. It's yeah. called Retrain Pain. Dot org. Okay. It's uh, that is put on by a group um, in New York. I think they're physical therapists. And like I said, I don't get any kickbacks from it. I just think it's a great resource for people. Yeah, abs- absolutely. The other group, the other things to look up would be uh, look up uh, the neuro neuro orthopedic Institute in Australia, either David Butler or Laura Mosley. They are pain researchers and, and, and just doing really cool work to help people who have chronic pain learn more and shift it and get out of pain. And you can find tons of YouTube videos for those guys. Yeah. And I think some of it is changing your belief system. I can't tell you how many people have come into my office and they're, they're working on very, you know, minor things, you know, sort of compared to what, where they were sometimes. And they'll tell me, Oh, I, 
you know, I had, I had, pro, I had this, you know, I had chronic back pain for years. I read the Sarno book. Yeah. I mean, have you heard this? Oh, too? Yeah. And I've actually never read it. I, I, I feel it's like all I, about your work. I, I know enough about it that yeah. I just haven't dug into it. I haven't but, read it either. I've but it's, but it's, it's, it's been around me, swirling around me. I'll probably have to sit down and read it at some point. But, but it's, it's another example of, of, you know, what, what we, what we can sort of do by changing that belief system too, the, the rewiring. Yeah. So, it's, well, it's everywhere. It's, you know, Western society, it's a reductionist. You know, you brought up thinking about our body in reductionist terms. Here's my finger. Here's my arm. Here's my big toe. Here's my stomach. Well, yeah, in some some ways that's useful to think about it that way. But really, our brain is continuous to every nerve, and every nerve goes every place in our body. It's just like the we talked about at the beginning. I turned to that one plate, that anatomy book, and the human form is completely covered in yellow. Nerves everywhere. So to me, what that really says is that there's no way to separate our brain, our mind from any other part of our body. It's all there, always. And when in the context of what our work, we have to acknowledge we're always working with with it. We're not breaking it into pieces. We're working with the whole person as best we can in our limited modality and skill yeah well thanks for doing this man this is great yeah such great resource really for people it. and thank you for for sharing some of the things that these these other things that you've been uh, leading people to mm-hmm. we'll, we'll we'll throw them up, up on the website yeah and, they're really useful tools and uh, yeah. do, do you have any any uh any any place of resource uh, a website or anything that you have to, sh- to share uh, yeah, I, my website is rolfingminneapolis.net. Okay, so if anyone's looking for some some mm-hmm. physical support or yeah. beyond. <laughs> even if you don't live here and you have questions or you're not interested in actually coming to my office, but you have a question, just email me. I'm I, I, I'll, As best as I can, I'll answer your questions. And the whole point of this is just helping people out and trying to be a good resource. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Jeremy. Really enjoyed it. Grant Earnhardt, folks. What I really like about Grant's perspective is his use of a very westernized model, but acknowledging that we are complicated creatures living within a world with many different forces and a lot of unknowns. And when it comes to chronic pain or the recovery of an injury, This therapeutic relationship often allows for the more subtle underlying things to move through the nervous system. As Grant suggests, we are not always working with what we think we are, and we may not ever know exactly how the healing happens. There's more and more scientific evidence to support our theories, but there's also the innate healing regenerating mechanism that is just built into us that may always remain a mystery. And because pain brings with it the relationship to our mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects, we are never just dealing with a physical pain issue. We, As we discussed, sometimes our, the nervous system or perhaps our unconscious will choose to use this pain period to address longer, more deeply held patterns of painful existential experience. And that could relate to our relationships, our jobs, um, our passions, and anything that we're, that we're struggling to move through. This can often come as a big surprise to the pain sufferer and for sure feels like a huge drag at the time. But in my therapeutic and personal experience, it's often been a way of ensuring that we become more aware and stay in that awareness and 
With that awareness, people often go through big life shifts in positive ways. I hope you enjoyed this topic. Let me know if you have any questions or are looking for a referral for yourself. I'm always available by email, jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and continued support of this podcast. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.